Hello, I'm Daniel. And I'm Liz. And welcome to A Dose of Dizzy. Your accessible but digestible dose of vestibular research. Welcome, everyone. Um, This is episode 10. Uh, I believe it. A, yes, of a dose of dizzy. This is uh, real exciting for us, and we're we're happy to still be doing this. And we're hope I'm hopeful that you know uh, all our listeners out there are getting some something out of this. So we're we're excited to keep doing this, and we have a really exciting topic this month, which is uh, superior semicircular canal dehiscence. Great, yeah, and we actually reviewed quite a few different resources, uh, which mm-hmm. we'll make sure to drop in our Instagram for you, but. Why don't you yeah. tell them what we looked at? So we have uh, five different things that we took a look at. We wanted to really get a comprehensive overview of this disorder. Uh, first one being the diagnostic criteria, which we'll talk about later on in the episode, which is basically the consens- consensus document um, of the Committee of Classification of Vestibular Disorders uh, by Ward et al. in 2020. Secondly, we looked at a comparison of surgical treatments of superior semicircular canal dehiscence. That was actually a systematic review. Um, and that was by Zillian and, uh, et al. in 2017. We also looked at another systematic review for SCD. However, it was more focused on pediatric superior semicircular canal dehiscence. So that one was by Langman et al. in 2017. Um, the last article we looked at was outcomes and complications of um, sem- superior semicircular canal dehiscence, a systematic review by Giacci et al. in 2016. And to top it off, uh, <laughs> lastly, we used a, a pretty nice textbook that um, Liz brought forth, but I, I actually had never um, read it, but it was actually really interesting, called Vertigo and Disequilibrium Textbook by Peter Weber. Yeah, so lots of different resources and really the whole topic that we're talking about that Daniel's already said like 18 times and probably has his tongue tied is Superior Semicircular Canal Dehiscence Syndrome. And probably from here on out, we'll probably call it SSCD. Unless you just want to say all those words six times fast. (laughs) Um, But essentially, this term was coined in 1998. So let us know if you were alive in 1998 by minor and colleagues. And essentially, this syndrome describes a unique subset of patients in whom sound and pressure-induced vertigo were found to be due to a dehiscence or hole in the superior semicircular canal. This tends to... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say the prevalence of it is that it affects about 1% to 2% of people. That percentage of prevalence is actually based mostly on temporal bone studies. Um, So, you know, the actual prevalence of the disorder may actually be higher because there's a lot of asymptomatic cases of this, which we'll get into. Patients tend to present with their symptoms in about the fifth or sixth decade of their life. And one article that we reviewed said that the average age of SSCD was around 43 years. And like we said, we looked at one systematic review of pediatric cases. There have been some cases in children that have been described Um, Most of the time, these cases will, or these children will report more auditory symptoms than vestibular symptoms. It's more common in boys versus girls. And um, they may have a generalized dizziness, but more of a vague description of it because as kids, they may have more difficulty explaining what dizziness is. And we know this is the case across a lot of pediatric vestibular disorders. 
Also, the changing dura with age may affect how clinically this disorder presents. So that's just a general overview of SSCD. Great. Um, so now we're going to sort of talk about the um, pathophysiology. So what actually is um, going on um, in some of these cases? So we're now we're going to talk about the pathophysiology of SSCD. And so in order for us to really understand the pathophysiology, we're going to briefly just go over what's normal function. And so normally, we have basically these two windows in the inner ear, the oval and round window. The round window actually plays a very important role, as I'm sure a lot of us know already, with regard to relieving the pressure that's created um, either due to sound or pressure in the, in, in the inner ear. Um, and so SSCD refers to this third window that's created um, either, and we'll talk about some of the causes um, in a bit, but basically this third window, uh, which renders the vestibular neuropathelium sensitive to sound or pressure um, as a result. And it actually has a really interesting history, which Liz is going to talk to us about. Yeah, so the third window, which we know is in addition to the oval and round windows in the inner ear, Actually, that whole concept originated in 1929 by an Italian biologist named Pietro Tullio. So this is a great trivia question if you're an audiology student and have like an essay game night or something. This is it. So 1929, he did, Tullio did this study in pigeons. And what he did was created a fistula in the horizontal semicircular canal. And he exposed them to a loud sound. And actually, he saw that the bird's head turned away from the damaged ear. And this is really where Tulio's phenomenon or Tulio's sign originated. And many of us still use that term uh, in our everyday reports. That's so interesting. Um, so basically what's happening is when sound enters the ear, the sound pressure that's created is going to take the path of least resistance. And it actually escapes towards this um, defective uh, part of the ear or this third window. Um, and what happens is the endolymphatic fluid that's displaced activates the canals of the vestibular apparatus. Um, depending on which canal is activated, we know that, you know, each canal has, you know, either an ampulopetal or ampulofutal um, displacement pattern. And so as a result, whichever canal is activated is going to align or correspond to certain eye movements, um, resulting in either upbeating or downbeating torsional nystagmus and vertigo. So one question I always have from patients is what can cause SSCD? And we've kind of divided it into two different realms. One is congenital, another is acquired SSCD. So we know that... Um, you can have a dehiscence in your inner ear from birth. And the theory behind this is actually the superior SCC is the first one to develop in utero, but at birth, it may only be covered with just a, one layer of the bone that tops it. And so many times, um, the well-formed bone does not cover the superior semicircular canal until about ages two or three years of age. And um, this actually comes from a temporal bone study in pediatric patients that took place at Johns Hopkins. Uh, the study that was referenced was Carey et al. in 2000. And so if this is not fully developed, there may be a predisposition for some to have a thin tegmen over this portion of the superior semicircular canal, which can make them 
either more susceptible to developing it later in life or just have a dehiscence from birth. Now we'll get into the second type of basically the second classification as far as causes for SSCD, um, which is going to be acquired. Um, this is, isn't something that you're born with. It's more or less you're, you're acquiring this later on in life. And so some individuals um, actually have a predisposition um, to developing SSCD, um, more or less a thinning of the overlaying bone. Um, secondly, which can either rupture or can, can, ca can be sort of enhanced by either a post-trauma event, a car accident, um, po postpartum strain, barrow trauma. So there's a lot of reasons why one may acquire SSCD. Um, what, what we found really interesting was in the textbook that we referenced, um, there were a couple of studies that suggested that obesity may actually lead to thinning of the lateral skull base, which could lead to um, a case of semicircular canal dehiscence. And that, was, that wasn't anything I was aware of prior yeah. to this. Me neither. Very interesting. So as an audiologist or an audiology student, you, of course, want to know, what can I expect? What do I need to ask the patient? What may they present with um, if they're in the clinic? So there can be vestibular, auditory symptoms, and then just other symptoms that are maybe outside of the audiology realm. So we'll talk through those. One would be Tulio's sign, which we've already referenced. And this is when loud sounds cause vertigo or dizziness. Hennebert's sign, you may have also heard about, this is pressure changes can cause vertigo. So maybe people will complain of dizziness upon coughing, sneezing, lifting, or straining. Pulsatile oscillopsia, which is, of course, the eye movement, kind of a jumping eye. Um, I don't know how else. Have you heard patients describe that any, any other ways? No. You know what? I haven't actually had a patient actually describe it to me, but, yeah. you know, have, from my understanding, it's sort of, you know, we know oscillopsia is like this jumping of, you know, objects in your environment. Um, but pulsatile oscillopsia is going to be synchronous. Um, yeah. I think it's also been called like a phase synchronous oscillopsia, mm -hmm. uh, but it will be synchronous to your pulse or to um, some type of... Um, stimulus too, like external yeah, stimulus, exactly. right? Yeah, mm -hmm. And then you can have a pulsatile tinnitus in the effective ear. And I will say some of my patients I've heard of blood flowing around the ear being a very common description. Uh, they can complain of imbalance or chronic, chronic disequilibrium, hyperacusis, uh, which is annoyance to sounds or intolerance of external everyday sounds. And then autophony, you also may have heard of this term already, but it, that's hearing your own bodily sound. So hearing eye movements, hearing your own voice too loud, etc. And then outside of the vestibular and auditory realm, some other symptoms patients may describe are headache, um, other migraineous symptoms, and nausea. Now, every episode, we talk about these clinical presentations and all of these symptoms, and they all seem to overlap, you know, so there's <laughs> definitely, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a limited amount of symptoms that people will experience, and so you have to consider other you know, you have to consider all of the different possibilities that this person may be um, experiencing. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, differential diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, so to really help you determine, is this SSCD or could it be, could their symptoms be attributed to something else? And so the first one that we're going to talk about is uh, 
as part of your differential is going to be vestibular migraine. Um, you know, this is similar in the fact that patients are going to report vertigo. They're going to report sound sensitivity. Um, they're going to report tinnitus. Uh, but one interesting distinction that um, may help you lean towards SSCD is vestibular migraine doesn't really present with any auditory findings. And this is going to have some type of um, auditory component as far as SSCD. So, um, you know, that's one thing that you want to keep in mind and to really um, land on an SSC di SSCD diagnosis. I guess unless they have a sensory neural hearing loss, but, you know, right. <laughs> typically right. no patterned hearing findings. Um, another disorder to consider is 3PD. Um, this is because the, both patients, 3PD patients and SSCD, look at all these acronyms, may present with vertigo <laughs> or chronic disequilibrium. I think the key differential between this is how, like the frequency of how often this is happening. We know in 3PD, I think the most recent criteria said that they have to be dizzy like every day for like the last three months, basically, <laughs> like in at least 50% of their day, the patient is reporting dizziness and it's not triggered. The dizziness in 3PD is not necessarily triggered by a specific event, whereas we'll talk about um, SSCD, it should really be triggered by sound for majority, sound or pressure. And the next one that we're going to get into is Meniere's disease. We, we talk about this as one of those, like, like vestibular migraine. It's some, <laughs> one of those more umbrella um, type disorders. But Meniere's disease is also going to be something that you're going to want to consider. Um, but one thing, and you know, Meniere's disease also has, it's going to have an auditory component. So this one might be a little bit more tricky, a little bit more overlapping with SSCD. Uh, but another thing to keep in mind is as far as the auditory symptoms or the auditory findings, which we'll get into a little bit later, um, Meniere's disease, you're going to have more or less classic Meniere's. You're going to have more of a low-frequency sensory neural mm -hmm. hearing loss, which um, most likely isn't going to be present in um, SSCD. There's going to be a low-frequency something there, but we'll uh, save that for later. Um <laughs> And uh, secondly, Meniere's disease, again, is not necessarily going to have that trigger component that SSCD will. Um, you know, this, the, the attacks are, are more or less spontaneous, um, and patients can't necessarily bring on their symptoms like they can with SSCD. Right. Another disorder to consider is eustachian tube dysfunction. Um, they may have some sort of pressure trigger for their auditory symptoms or changes that they report, but most of the time I haven't seen a patient yet that reports vertigo or vertiginous symptoms or any really any type of dizziness with eustachian tube dysfunction. And lastly, um, not lastly. We got two kidding. more. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, the next one is going to be enlarged vestibular aqueduct. Um, and so if we remember what that is. This is going to be some type of change in hearing, um, which could result in vestibular symptoms after, um, you know, a head injury. Um, you most typically see this in kids, but one thing to remember with EVA when you're trying to figure out is this EVA or is this um, SSCD is that EVA is more or less going to have um, you you could possibly more or less um, more more likely to expect a unilateral sensory neural hearing loss there um, that again considering or assuming that it's not present 
before the SSCD wouldn't necessarily be there. Yeah. And uh, lastly, for real, after a head injury, these are all kind of after head injury when, we, when we're thinking about SSCD. Another thing to consider is perilymph fistula. And uh, Daniel and I were talking about this yesterday because it, it does get a little bit hairier when you're trying to compare perilymph fistula to SSCD. And we'll talk about a few ways to distinguish, but um, perilymph fistula really should occur after a barotrauma. Uh, so you'll see it in scuba divers, secondary to some sort of otologic um, surgery. So you can definitely see that because they create a fistula for a lot of surgeries in the manner of their technique um, or some other like pressure event. You can have varying audiologic findings, which I think is always complicated when you're thinking about differentiating one disorder from another. Parallel fistula can be all across the board with what you find on the audiogram. I saw a really interesting article on audiology online, um, which said that the difference from SSCD is in when you do a true perilymph fistula test. Um, so you put a pressurized stimulus in the ear canal. What you should see uh, with SSCD, am I saying this right, Daniel, is that the nystagmus is horizontal. Correct. Yep. Or is it a perilymph fistula? The, is it horizontal? I should look No, no, up. no. It should be perilymph right. fistula. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> fistulas generate horizontal nystagmus, and SSCD is more of a vertical nystagmus. So, that is a really great differential. And I was telling Daniel yesterday, I've never used that, and I should totally, because a lot of times the case history can sound very, very similar. So, this is going to move us into the next phase or the next, next segment of the episode, which is going to discuss the diagnostic criteria. So what constitutes um, a definitive um, SSCD diagnosis? And overall, it's going to focus more or less on, one, what, is the patient, what are the patient's symptoms? And secondly, what are the clinical findings that you're going to find? So it's going to be a combination of the two to make that diagnosis. So first, um, for the, the Bar- according to the Barony Society, to have an SSC diagnosis, you're going to need at least one of the following symptoms, which is going to be consistent with the third window phenomenon. Um, first one is either going to be uh, bone conduction hyperacusis, so this sound sensitivity. Um, second is going to be sound or pressure-induced vertigo or and or oscillopsia, which is going to be time-locked to the stimulus. So remember what we talked about SSCD is going to be triggered by this event. These patients can bring on their symptoms. So it's going to be time-locked to whatever triggering event is occurring. And third is going to be some type of pulsatile tinnitus, which is going to be likely, it's going to likely be these transmitted pulses through um, of the dura um, through these affected canals. Yeah, and then when we look at diagnostically what you should see when you're evaluating the patient, you need to have at least one of these following signs in order to consider it for the patient uh, or this diagnosis for the patient. Number one is nystagmus that corresponds to the superior semicircular canal, so vertical nystagmus, which is evoked either by sound, um, middle ear pressure, and and or intracranial pressure changes. So uh, Daniel and I were just kind of chatting about how we would do this in the clinic. Uh, one thing you could do is, of course, run a perilymph fistula test with a pair of VNG goggles so that you could record the associated nystagmus. 
Um, you could also throw in a VIMP sting stimulus. A lot of us have evoked potential sy- systems in our VNG labs. So um, being able to put a loud stimulus in the ear with a pair of video goggles, you may be able to record those eye movements. And that is not something that I frequently do, but it would be so easy because um, I do my VIMPs first and then I usually go through the rest of my protocol. So that'd be really easy to incorporate. Definitely. In order to um, get some inter- intracranial pressure, you could have the patient uh, vocalize an E sound, or you could do an atragus closure. So literally like closing their external ear canal <laughs> to try to create a little bit of pressure in the ear canal um, and see if you see any of that nystagmus. Second thing um, that you may find in your diagnostic testing is, and this is very common, low frequency negative bone conduction thresholds on pure tone audiometry. And a lot of times in audiology, we refer to this as the air bone gap in the low frequencies. One thing that's super important that you test if you don't already is 250 hertz bone conduction. I feel like this is standard across vestibular labs and clinics and Honestly, every audiologist should be testing 250 hertz bone conduction because you may be able to pick up on a possible dehiscence uh, just through your audiometric testing and you'll know when and how to refer. Absolutely. And I know we were just talking. I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. I get this question all the time, but why is bone conduction so low and so good, I guess, uh, in these cases? So one thought as as far as why you're going to be getting these airbone gaps is it's usually or it's thought to be due from the low impedance pathway that's caused by the pressure of a third window effect um you know this is this is a disorder that's affecting the bone itself and so mm-hmm. you know we know that through bone conduction you're going to have this vibratory stimulus ro- radiating through this bone uh through the skull and so there's going to be some, um, you know, things that occur that should not occur if a third window was not present. Right. And you may even see like negative 10, negative 5. And so your bone conduction will get better in these cases. The air conduction may get worse. So you'll definitely see that air bone gap. And then the third test or possible diagnostic sign that you'll see is enhanced VEMP responses. I'm going to turn this over to Daniel because he <laughs> loves to talk about VEMPs. Um. So, yes, so this is probably one of the more um, definitive findings that you will see um, when testing somebody with uh, suspected SSCD. Um, the Barony Society talks about these enhanced event responses. What does that actually mean? Um, well, as it pertains to CVEMP, we're talking about abnormally low threshold levels right so what is the lowest stimulus level where you're still getting a present response and for ovamps it's going to be these high amplitude ovamps we know that ovamps are much smaller in amplitude Mm -hmm. compared to cvamps and so you're going to be getting these abnormally high amplitude ovamps Um, and you can you can always refer to our vamp episode i think it was one of our like first or second (laughs) episode we reviewed the ideal characteristics and stimuli parameters for both c and ovamps because they are they can be a little bit different in sscd what you may want to look at right so i'm gonna take us on a little tangent here but we're Uh gonna jump right back so in everyone (laughs) so when we're talking about these low threshold cvamps um the committee really 
wants to make it clear that when you're comparing threshold level, you want to make sure that you're comparing it to lab norms, um, mm -hmm. normative data that's collected on your own clinical equipment and not necessarily normative data that's published in some other paper that may not necessarily be your um, align with your stimulus and recording parameters. We know one of the things about CVEMS, there's so much variability in the stimulus and recording parameters used. And so what is an actual normal threshold? Well, the best way to figure that out is by comparing threshold to your own normative data. Right. Um, and there's Secondly, with OVEMPs, um, we talk about these high-amplitude OVEMPs, but there's been recent evidence to suggest that patients with SSCD have OVEMPs or present OVEMPs at not 500 hertz, but 4,000 hertz. And so one thing you may want to consider if you are suspecting somebody coming into your clinic and they, you're suspecting them um, of having SSCD is run a 4,000 hertz OVEMP. If it's present, that is an indicator of SSCD. If it's absent, um, it's it's actually, um, there's definitely emerging evidence to suggest that that may be a little bit, at least as sensitive as some of the other um, threshold CVAMPs or other things like that. For sure. So definitely a lot of things to add to your diagnostic tool belt. We know that the patient has to report one of those three symptoms we discussed. You have to show at least one of the following signs or diagnostic tests, nystagmus, airbone gaps, VEMP responses. And then it's all confirmed through high-resolution temporal bone CT imaging. And they, you know, ENTs usually are the people you refer to for this. And they may know this. They should know. Um, but if a physician asks you, you can ask for high-resolution temporal bone CT imaging with multi-planar construction. And that they have to show a hole in the bone over that superior canal. Uh, lastly, it cannot be attributed to another vestibular disease or disorder. And that's why we talked so much about the other disorders that sound similar, because there are a lot of overlapping symptoms. So you need to rule out right. the other similar sounding diseases before you can consider this one. So one last thing to sort of wrap up the diagnostic criteria. Unlike other disorders that have been mentioned by the Barryness Society or have been evaluated by the Barryness Society, such as vestibular migraine. If you remember from that our previous episode, we talked about these classifications between definite vestibular migraine mm -hmm. and probable vestibular migraine. Um, this was considered um, at the time of coming up with these diagnostic criteria. However, there really wasn't enough evidence to suggest differentiate uh, to differentiate the two and so there is no definite or probable sscd right. it's more or less if somebody meets these criteria then more likely than not that that's something that's the way you want to go and i did want to mention that this diagnostic criteria only refers to the superior semicircular canal so that was something i learned because i've had patients who have been had dehiscences in other canals and so it's important to realize this criteria only responds to the or refers to the superior semicircular canal all right that's going to lead us into our a more in-depth discussion um, of our clinical findings and so we're going to talk about, this is going to be more audiology focused. So yeah. what is um, going to be 
you know, you're testing this patient, um, they're in your clinic, what specific things may you encounter during the testing? And so um, first thing we're going to talk about is audiometry. So we mentioned this low frequency air bone gap that could occur. And so when you're doing pure tone audiometry, you may find that, you know, a 10 to 20 dB low frequency conductive hearing loss. You may find this air bone gap with normal um, speech discrimination, normal reflexes, and normal, normal tympanometry. And so that is one thing that should sort of tip you off um, to SSCD in this case. One thing I learned with reviewing these papers that I think I've been telling students, I'm so sorry I've told many of you this, but there's no correlation that's been found between the size of the dehiscence and the size of the air bone gap in the audiogram. So not enough research to support that. Um, but second thing, which we've talked quite a bit about already, is VIMP testing. You should see a low threshold. Um, so that means you get a response when the stimulus level is low and a high amplitude. So it's a much larger amplitude response than your than you're used to. And with CVIMPs, um, one paper cited that the sensitivity of using CVIMPs thresholds for SSCD is greater than 80%. Um, but again, the caveat is this may be based on norms across the lab, maybe not your personal clinical norms. Secondly, um, OVIMPs, we talked about the increased amplitudes that you may find. Um, I'm going to throw in a little uh, side um, no. note for OVAMP. Um, <laughs> you know, I would I would also include a 4,000 hertz OVAMP. Yeah, um, I think that's a good idea. You know, do a quick, it doesn't take very long. Do it at super threshold. You don't have to try to find threshold or anything like that. Just, you know, run a quick 4,000 hertz OVAMP. Is it present or absent? Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, uh, just a reminder, if you have a conductive low-frequency hearing loss on the audiogram, you really shouldn't have a VEMP because, hello, conductive hearing loss. So if you have conductive hearing loss on the audiogram and normal temps and you get a VEMP, your index of suspicion for SSCD should increase. That's a really good point. Um, ECOG. Don't talk about this very much, nor do I even really do them, if I'm being honest, but... Um, there is some research to support that there would be an elevated SPAP ratio in ECOGs. However, I think the general consensus is that this is not a sensitive enough test. Typically, ECOG is used to help diagnose Meniere's disease. But again, another thought to consider is that if you have a true conductive hearing loss, you would not have an ECOG. So again, another way to just confirm that it's not a true middle ear conductive hearing loss. So... Again, we can't rely too much on ECOG. I Darn think that's it. the moral, moral of the story. Um, so lastly, as far as clinical findings, one thing that you may want to think about or, um, you know, thoughts running through your head is, does this person have a unilateral or bilateral canal SSCD? Now, one thing to remember is that up to 50% of patients actually have bilateral SSCD. Um, and those with bilateral SSCD tend to have larger air bone gaps. Um, they also may have lower vent thresholds. So maybe it's not the size of dehiscence that's affecting the air bone <laughs> gap, but coming. the number. I, was, I know, yep, it's like a light bulb in my head. <laughs> so let's say you find the low threshold vents, you have an air bone gap on the audiogram, the patient's reporting symptoms. 
probably your next step you need to do is refer to an ear, nose, throat physician uh, for that high-resolution CT scan. And the patient's going to ask you, what can I do about this? What can I do? There's really two main things that can be done. Uh, One would be a surgical, which is a medical intervention, of course, like a surgical treatment. Um, And the second one is you can do some management of the symptoms. So let's start with uh, the surgery approaches that are used for SSCD. So two primary approaches are used to not only plug, resurface, or or cap the dehiscence. Um, one is called the transmastoid approach. The second one is called the tran- uh, the middle fossa approach. Um, you know, based off of our, our readings, the transmastoid approach has shown to have lower complication rates, lower revision rates. So how many times did it work the first time or did they right. have to go back? Um, and a shorter hospital stage, was, which I thought was pretty interesting. Was interesting. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely one um, two of the approaches that, um, we came across, um, as far as surgical treatments. There's also a newer technique, uh, that's been mentioned in some of these papers, the trans canal approach. And I think the complications may be more rare with this, but ultimately, you know, the goal of surgery is to, again, like plug up that hole or resurface that hole so that there's not that third window. We're trying to bring it back down to two windows in the inner yes. ear. And so, What's interesting is after surgery, you really should see an improvement in your diagnostic findings. So in audiometry, in your CVIMS or your OVIMS, you should see an improvement in those if the surgery was successful. As far as what the patient reports, that can be kind of varied because I know I've had some patients that have gone through a SSCD plugging and they may actually report an increase in dizziness for a while, which makes sense because anytime you're in the inner ear and affecting, you know, the amount of information going to the brain, it can kind of throw some people off. So whether it improves their symptoms is a little bit more questionable. And that leads us right into the second um, option for patients, which is going to be more management of the uh, symptoms. So a more of a non-surgical approach. Um, So what do we mean by that? So first, we know that SSCD is going to have these auditory as well as vestibular symptoms. And so managing auditory symptoms such as the hyperacusis, such as hyperacusis, such as tinnitus, um, patient may go through tinnitus retraining therapy, maybe even a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy to really help um, them manage these auditory symptoms. As, As far as vestibular symptoms, really trying to avoid... Um, triggers, which again, might be a little bit more difficult um, on a day-to-day basis. Right. And you know, one thing to mention if the patient chooses a non-surgical route is there's still going to be a physiologic issue in the peripheral vestibular system. So even, you know, whereas tinnitus just caused from sensory neural hearing loss may be easier for a patient to acclimate through tinnitus retraining therapy, it's a little bit harder when there is a true hole in the inner ear that's causing these symptoms. So it's something to be aware of. Of course, the brain is a pretty powerful thing, so you can retrain it to do a lot of different things. And we've had success, I know, with our patients in this capacity, but uh, definitely something to counsel the patient on. So that brings us right into the end. We're we're rounding the finish line here. So we're going to get into a couple of the questions um, a few of you had um, from our Instagram uh, posts a few days back. And so, Liz, I'm going to ask you this first one. Okay. What if imaging finds the dehiscence, but you find something else wrong? 
Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> kind of a complicated question because if you've been in vestibular for any amount of time, you know that nothing is textbook beautiful diagnostic criteria. You you may find two vestibular disorders in the same person. Um, and they likely are not related. I can't think, and we kept just racking our brain back and forth, because I don't think that there's any concurrent disorders that are known to come with SSCD. So we were just mentioning an example um, off the recording about how when you have a vestibular neuritis, that puts you more at risk to getting BPPV as a result of that. SSCD is not really like that. There's not a cause and effect or a comorbid vestibular disorder that happens with it. So, you know, my thought, and this is true even if you were to see a patient that comes in, you find an old neuritis, is to treat the current symptom set. So what is the patient coming in with? Are they complaining about um, auditory stimuli, sound or pressure evoked issues? Because I find a lot of dehiscences in people that are asymptomatic, they've probably had it for majority of their life. And that's what I would call an incidental finding. So you may find a low threshold CVAMP and be like, hey, are you sensitive to sound? You didn't mention anything to me. And they're like, nope. And you're like, okay. I mean, it's an incidental finding. So always treat the current symptom set that the patient has. Um, and I think this is really where we can shine as, as clinicians because yes, you can find things, but you ultimately want to help the patient with their current symptoms. Awesome. Killing it. Great. <laughs> Thanks. Come see me. Um, and then second question is, what if you have no airbone gap at 250 hertz, but a present CVIMP at reduced thresholds? Would you still refer for imaging? This is this is a great question. I mean, like you just mentioned, Liz, you know, nothing is ever textbook. Nothing is always going to align. You're not going to fill in all of these these holes for every single disorder. So if we think back to the diagnostic criteria, we remember that we had all of these different classifications or findings that would lead one to suspect SSCD, and we needed at least one of those. Yeah. Right. And so in this case, um, we would still refer because we did get um, you know, a present CVAMP at reduced thresholds, even though we may not have gotten the air bone gap at 250. So yes, especially if the patient is symptomatic, um, you know, we're, we're going to still refer for that imaging. We're still, they're still going to meet that classification for SSCD. I guess another question I just thought of is, would you still refer if the patient was asymptomatic, but you had one or multiple findings for an SSCD? Cause this is a question I ask right. myself pretty frequently. Right. I probably still would. I, I think, you know, the patient is still being referred to you for something you know, yeah. related to dizziness. Um, I don't know. I probably still would. Um, I don't know. What about you, Liz? Yeah, I definitely have still ended up referring because again, you know, although it's not reflected necessarily in the strict diagnostic criteria we read, there are some notes that go into some more details, but chronic disequilibrium is an example that a patient may report um, with an SSCD. So I think if you find it, it may relate to their symptoms. And we know that people aren't necessarily the best about describing dizziness. It means kind of something different to everybody. So I think it's the most conservative thing you could do. And whether the patient wants to act on it or not is up to them. But yeah, I think it's definitely within our realm and we should be referring. That's really good insight. Um, whoa, we are have hit the end here. We're done. That's it. All the questions. You're welcome to ask more on our Instagram um, I was actually telling Daniel, and I'm pretty sure I say this every month, and I don't mean to be flighty, but I actually do have some really good cases to share from SSCD 
Um, you're already going to know what the diagnosis is. So I'll just show you some examples of how it can present in the patient. But stay tuned to our Instagram and uh, share, like, follow, whatever you do yes. on those things. All right. Well, so we'll see you back here next month for episode 11. Yes. Send us any ideas. Message us. We love hearing from you. Take care, everyone.